Madison, the last week of April, 1968. Muhammad Ali comes to town. Bobby Knight turns us down. And entertainers of great renown. It's the weekend of the international student strike against war, racism, and the draft. And local organizers have brought in the most famous protester in America, the greatest of all time, Muhammad Ali. Except the champ who had been stripped of his heavyweight crown and sentenced to five years in prison for refusing induction in 1967, has other things on his mind. I'm not promoting anything anti-draft, and I'm not here to talk about the war, he tells the 2500 who paid 75 cents for a Friday afternoon program on April 25th. I'm here on behalf of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad to explain the black Muslim approach to racism. At first, Ali dominates the stock pavilion stage, just as he did the ring. The crowd chuckles when he says he doesn't have, quote, the complexion or the connection to talk about his conviction while it's under appeal. And they roar when he sets forth the black Muslim economic program. We don't want no pie in the sky when we die, he says. We want something sound on the ground while we're still around. But Ali's call for complete separation between blacks and whites doesn't go over as well. The crowd grumbles when he calls integration hypocritical and hisses even boos when he declares, quote, intermarriage and race mixing should be prohibited. A Madison police officer on an undercover special assignment is not impressed. Much of Ali's speech was repetitious and not particularly revealing, he reports in a confidential filing filled with misspellings, even of the names Muhammad Ali and Cassius Clay. Many times Ali was hissed by the audience, and in fielding questions, he often showed a very infantile mentality. The undercover officer did accurately peg the crowd at about 2,500, adding he's, quote, certain that a large number were there only to hear the great boxer, not the Muslim preacher. This because I recognized a number of students who I know to be non-radical. It's left to a distinguished history professor, William Appleman Williams, to make the kind of politically pointed remarks the students are expecting. He calls for a reconstruction of this society and declares, hell yes, we can change this mess. The weekend is a mixed success. The strike itself largely fizzles, with only a handful of picketers outside classrooms, Although organizers say that the entire crowd at Ali's speech is essentially on strike, since the rally is during the day, one likely reasons most students go to class, 12-week exams are underway. On Saturday, a peaceful crowd of about 400 march from campus to the state capitol, where they sit in the spring sun for about two hours of speeches from leaders of several anti-war and anti-racism organizations. But back on campus, all the buzz is about our brief brush with a basketball coach who brought success and controversy wherever he went. Bobby Knight, the head coach at West Point, was named Badger basketball coach on April 24th. But two days later, Knight throws a hissy fit over the way the appointment had been announced. He doesn't quite understand public records and open meetings, and he rejects the job. He claims he had never made a commitment to Wisconsin, but everyone knows he had. Still, the athletic board moves on and quickly names current assistant coach John Paulus, who said he would drop his job as tennis coach to focus on basketball. 
but all that is far away Thursday night, when a triple bill of world-class entertainers plays a three-hour show at the Dane County Memorial Coliseum. Jackie Leonard's sour sarcasm gets mixed reviews from the crowd of 4,000, but headliners Tony Bennett and Duke Ellington bring all the class and grace the place could stand, and all for a top ticket of $5.50. And that's this week's Madison History Podcast. Madison, the first week of October, 1968. Two nudes are bad news for the University of Wisconsin, as a psychedelic production of Peter Pan provokes repression and prosecution. Stuart Gordon, a 21-year-old drama student from Chicago, had the artistic vision to modernize the children's classic by turning Captain Hook into Chicago Mayor Daly, his pirates into cops, and the pixie dust into LSD, which he represented by having co-eds do a modern dance of innocence under an acid rock light show. Nude co-eds. But James Bowl, the 33-year-old Republican district attorney, had the legal vision that their doing so was obscene. Community standards, the DA declared, do not permit girls to dance nude before an audience. On Tuesday, October 1st, Bowles says he'll pass on prosecuting over single performance the week before, but makes very clear that Gordon and any new dancers would be arrested and prosecuted and risk a $5,000 fine and five-year prison term if the production proceeded as planned that evening at the Memorial Union Play Circle. It would not proceed as planned, but it would proceed. Once the DA ruled the play obscene, the recently appointed Chancellor Edwin Young canceled its use of the play circle. He just didn't figure that a student film group would give up its Buster Keaton Film Festival and yield its use of the basement auditorium in the Commerce Building. Which it did, so that Gordon can put on two free performances in B10, each with two nude co-eds dancing under swirling colored lights before about a thousand students. The atmosphere was electric. The next day, Bowles says he'll be filing charges against Gordon and the dancers. Just as soon as he can find one of those thousand to sign a complaint and can find out who the dancers were. Alderman Paul Soglin says that Bowles, appointed in early 1967 by Republican Governor Warren Knowles and facing his first election the following month, is pandering to the, quote, provincial and repressive attitudes in this community. And the history grad student takes a swipe at his alma mater. For all their claptrap about free speech and sifting and winnowing, Soglin asks, where are the university officials when the chips are down? Well, President Fred Harvey Harrington and Chancellor Edwin Young are busy getting slapped around by the Board of Regents and kind of slapping back. That Friday, the Regents' monthly meeting, Chancellor Young's first full meeting after his appointment exactly three weeks before. It does not go well, as the board engages in extensive unhappy discussion about the matter, along with talk of the growing drug problem on campus and the looming return of Dow Chemical for more job interviews. Not satisfied the administration is taking things seriously enough, Regent Walter Rank moves that the regents order the administration to block any further new dancing. If I were president of the university, Regent Gordon Walker lectures Harrington, I would be embarrassed to have the regents have to step in and make this statement. I am embarrassed, Harrington replies, by the fact that the regents are acting without hearing from the faculty. You can pass any resolution you want, Harrington concedes, but I am not especially happy with this. 
So the regents vote 7-2 to, to, quote, go on record as not condoning nudity in theatrical productions and that they deny the use of University of Wisconsin buildings and facilities for such productions. Also on Friday, D.A. Bowl finally finds a complainant, a former state Senate aide, and issues an arrest warrant for Director Gordon on two counts, with a potential 10-year term and $10,000 fine. But he still doesn't know who the dancers were. So he fires campus police chief Ralph Hansen from the investigation and gives the file to the sheriff's department. Gordon, who would become a prominent filmmaker in the horror genre, appears voluntarily for arraignment on Monday morning and is released on his own signature for $1,000 bail. Still no news on the dancers. As for the production, it gets mixed reviews. Assistant speech professor Robert Skloot, one of a group of professors who declared the show not obscene, calls the production, quote, alternately dull and magnificent, with the dance sequence a spectacle of beauty not otherwise achieved. He says the play shows pitfalls common to new and bright directors like Gordon, but has compensating virtues. And that's this week's Madison History Podcast. They melt into a dream Madison, May 3rd, 1969. A Saturday afternoon block party becomes a three-night riot. Why don't we do it in the road, the poster read, quoting the Beatles and confronting the authorities who refused to close the 500 block of West Mifflin Street. Back then, even parties and their posters were political. This one was clear. Roll your own reality. Armed love. Off the pig. Late afternoon, it's in the high 70s. Several hundred students and hippies dancing in the street. Traffic is slowed, but can pass through. About 4.30, a squad car loudspeaker squawks out the order to get off the street. Jeers and boos ensue. Half hour or so later, cops get serious. Mayor Bill Dyke is at the zoo with his son, and Police Chief Wilbur Emery is out of town, so the hard-nosed police inspector Herman Thomas is in charge. His message for his men is simple. We're going down to crack some heads. It starts with about 15 officers forcibly clearing the streets, seizing students here and there. Alderman Paul Soglin drives up in his 10-year-old Triumph convertible, from which he is soon removed and arrested. And while the cops have him in custody... They cut his hair. Alderman Eugene Parks, just weeks into his term as Madison's first black alderman, pleads with Dyke for an emergency permit, but has no luck. Janice Joplin wails from a stereo at Ronnie Epstein's flat at 512 Mifflin until the cops burst in and cut the music. They're spoiling for a fight, and some of the kids are too. Outside, they pelt the cops with bottles and rocks. Police pump tear gas and wail away with nightsticks, drawing blood. A few times they even draw their weapons. As darkness falls over Mifland, the trash fires start. Barricades go up, ladders and plywood blocking Bassett and Mifflin, until the squad cars smash them down. Barricades go up, get smashed back down. One officer's ribs are fractured. Another throws a brick through the window at the Mifflin Street co-op. And all around tear gas, so many canisters that a foggy pall settles over the three flats. Sometimes, the tear gas is fired right inside. Sunday afternoon, a mass of students starts to gather again. Cops declare the entire area an unlawful assembly and start making more arrests. 
including Soglin again, while he's standing on private property and watching. Another first-term member of the Common Council, Westside Alder Alicia Ashman, tries to bail him out, but the jailers won't take her check. So Fire Captain Ed Durkin and fellow firefighters pay the $507, which greatly upsets both the police department and the Police and Fire Commission, which wants to know if the bail money came from union funds. None of your business, replies Captain Durkin, who in six years would become Chief Durkin, thanks to the Police and Fire Commission appointed by Mayor Paul Soglin. Alderman Parks is also arrested for taking exception to how police were handling another detainment. That night, more trash fires and barricades, more tear gas and billy clubs, running battles from State Street to the Southeast Dorms. About 50 students and 20 officers are taken to city hospitals over the weekend, all but two treated and released. There are about 100 arrests, including a starting lineman for the Wisconsin football team. The Student Senate puts $1,900 into a student bail fund, with more money being raised on the streets. Monday, more the same, only more so. Early evening, Mayor Dyke comes down to ground zero, speaking from the steps of the Mifflin Co-op to a crowd of several hundred. He rejects Soglin's demand for amnesty in a new block party ordinance and gives the crowd 30 minutes to disperse. They build new barricades instead, and the third night's riot is on. By the time it's all over Tuesday morning, shattered storefronts up and down State Street, and Madison has again made its mark with the first white urban riot of the era. Tuesday, some peace in the streets, great tension in the suites, in Mifflin, the so-called Committee of 30, a citizens group started by attorney and future Wisconsin Supreme Court Chief Justice Shirley Abrahamson, arrives for a fact-finding conversations. Students tell them about police brutality, as well as substandard housing and bad landlords. But at a very tense, even tearful council meeting, things go from bad to worse. First, the council refuses to act on Soglin's call for a street permit for the next weekend. And then an alder from the Far East Side presents a petition calling for Parks and Soglin to be removed from office if they participate in any future demonstrations. Alderman Parks storms out in righteous anger. Out in California, a sibling city's underground press pays respects. Madison won, Berkeley nothing, the Berkeley Barb declares. And that's this week's Madison History Podcast. For WORT News... I'm Stu Levitan.